0: Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. Here with me is Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Today our guest is Dr. Greg Beal. Dr. Beal holds a J. Gressimation Chair of New Testament and is Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Westminster University. Theological Seminary. He is author or editor of numerous books, including the recently published Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom in the Short Studies in Biblical Theology series uh, published by Crossway. Dr. Beale, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Glad to be here.
2: Yes, Greg, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on, on this podcast. As you know, I've appreciated your friendship and scholarship for a long time and We're here primarily to talk about your entry in the Short Studies in Biblical Theology series, but first, uh, if you don't mind, let me ask you a a broader question just to get us started. You've uh, widely published in the field of biblical theology, of course, most notably your um, New Testament Biblical Theology. Uh, how would you assess the current state of the discipline of biblical theology, its promise, maybe any cautions, other observations?
1: Uh, well, um, I think my impression right now um, is that we're in a phase of um, application That is, I think there's been a lot of good biblical theology done from the late 90s up to um, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that uh, some good work is still being done in the new studies in biblical theology. Mm -hmm. But the new um, works in the field that are now coming out are works such as the one in which uh, my volume, Redemptive Reversals, has come out in, Short Studies in Biblical Mm -hmm. Theology Through Crossway, and then there are uh, a parallel series uh, with InterVarsity Press, Essential Studies in Mm -hmm. Biblical Theology, and then with Zondervan, there's a Biblical Theology for Life. All of these are attempts Mm -hmm. to take the results of a lot of the work over the last 20, uh, maybe even 25 years that's mm-hmm. been done, especially within evangelicalism and to try to communicate that to the church. Um, I think it's a, a very good stage that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I do hope that we'll continue to alongside this, get good, substantial works in, in the area of biblical theology. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, uh, pretty much the stage we're in. I think also I could mention in terms of this more popular effort, the um, uh, NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible mm-hmm. uh, is another effort along those lines. So we're, it's a very good stage, I think. I think uh, uh, I know we started this session with prayer, and I think it'd be a good prayer that these uh, volumes would have an effect in the church with respect to especially, I think, overall that uh, people in a church would to begin to read the bible as a whole and understand the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old um more consciously
2: yeah that's very helpful greg i i guess it 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 takes a, a, a mature and uh, you know a serious caliber of scholar to to tackle the task of writing a full-fledged biblical theology so I guess you can see how some people try to tackle, you know, more like shorter uh, bits and and pieces that might be another um, reason why you only have a limited number of, of, you know, full-fledged lengthy biblical theology such as as yours. Uh, You're perhaps best known for your work, at least some of our listeners may know you uh, for your work on the book of Revelation and and also on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, especially the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. You edited jointly with uh, Don Carson. Uh, but today, as I mentioned, I'd uh, love to talk to you a bit about your uh, shorter book on redemptive reversals. I love his series, and, and I like the creative title of your book as well. Uh, remember when I first saw it, it just kind of like, struck me as hmm that's that's creative um uh, so how did you come up with the title and then can you tell me uh you, you told me privately earlier I'd love for you to share with our listeners the backstory of of how this volume, how you conceived of it, and how it came to fruition
1: Yes, so you, you asked the title first, uh, so I'll address that mm-hmm. uh I did not come up with that title um the uh, the editors did. Uh, The title that I first proposed was um, The Weapons of Weakness and the Weakness of the World. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think for this series, that was too popular of a sounding title. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think they wanted a title that would still be true to the contents of the book and yet perhaps fit in Mm -hmm. a little bit better into the series and certainly uh this book is definitely about redemptive reversals right um uh the, the subtitle um hits the how can i put it redemptive reversals is the positive side mm-hmm. the subtitle is the negative side the ironic overturning of human wisdom mm-hmm. so um there there are two elements in in the book uh uh, uh of um god uh reversing the suffering and curses of God's people and working them and creating them into, um, redemptive patterns. And then there's the, um, reversals of the ungodly who attempt to exert their power in various ways and, um, ultimately usurp, uh, uh authority, uh, above even that of God and, uh, and ultimately, all their efforts end up uh, in judgment. Uh, as Proverbs says, there's a way which seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. So that, that's about the title. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to the, um, the back story, I, 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 I didn't uh, remember telling you much about it. I probably abbreviated it, but... Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's kind of embarrassing, but I'll go on and tell you. Um, around 1983, into my third year of teaching, when I was at a college called Grove City College, Presbyterian College in Northwest Pennsylvania, um, I uh, was uh, inspired to uh, write this book, <laughs> and so I did. Um, I submitted it to a well-known evangelical publisher. They were very seriously interested And um, and when it came to the final decision, they decided not to publish it. I think I passed it on maybe to one more publisher and the, uh, they decided uh, not to publish it. And so I put it in my file cabinet <laughs> and, um, uh, recent and uh, though however I will say when I got to Gordon Connell was teaching there as well as Sweden mm-hmm. um, that in my um, uh, biblical theology courses I would put some chapters of it on reserve for students to read as required reading mm-hmm. sometimes recommended reading and um, because I I felt that one aspect of biblical theology was this element of um, redemptive uh, and, and judgmental reversals. So, um, and, and I, I got some good feedback, and uh, so I was encouraged by that. But I still didn't try to do anything with the book. Then, um, so not 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 too long ago, um, uh, the uh, editor of uh, of the series um, asked me if uh, I had anything to write for the series. And, um, I said, well, uh, not really. Uh, we were having dinner with him and, um, my wife said, Hey, you do have something. You, you, you've got the uh, old manuscript on irony in your files. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's true. I, I, I do. It would certainly have to be, um, it would have to be rewritten. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was Dane Ortland, And, uh, mm-hmm. and so I said, well, I, I guess I could look into that. And so he said, well, why don't you? So I looked into it and the manuscript was in pretty bad shape. And, um, it had been, um, I think, uh, in, in some way transmuted from a, an old typewritten manuscript into. I think it had been scanned actually, uh, Onto a computer and and then tried uh, someone tried to put it into uh, a typeable form. Uh, but, you know, it was in poor shape. So at any rate, someone uh, helped me with getting it in, in, into presentable form so that I could work on the revision of it. And uh, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess that's a, I guess that's a irony. The book that looked like it would never <laughs> yeah. be published, a uh, 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 restorative irony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I must say, Greg, it is an unusual book for you. You cite, you know, if our listeners. I certainly encourage them to pick up the book and read it. But if you haven't already, I mean, uh, you cite the. Uh, m- People like Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities, and uh, Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes, and <laughs> Cervantes' Don Quixote de la Mancha. Uh, yeah, I get the I, sense you really I, I enjoyed a, writing I the book
1: a in that genre in my life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I got to know another great Beale than the one that most of us know. You know, because we know you uh, primarily for your massive commentaries and <laughs> monographs. So there's also this I think fascinating uh, you know, subplot of, of of getting to know you, maybe you know how you started out your career, and um of course I know you revised it, uh bring it up to, to date.
0: Well, that's an incredible story. And uh looking at your book more specifically. Ah, uh, what are redemptive reversals? Um It seems essentially you're discussing instances of irony throughout scripture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and how, so, how would you define irony in this sense? are there different types of irony in scripture?
1: Yeah, I think I, I can I can speak um, broadly that at its um, at its core, you know we hear it all the time on the news, political discussions. Is't it ironic that Uh, Today, such and such happened when on this date 10 years ago, the opposite Mm -hmm. happened or something like that. You know, you hear it all the time. And, and, you know, when you get right down to it, people are a little, little, they're they're hard put to come up with a definition. I think simply we could say, and there's there's a whole, uh, there's a growing literature on irony in the Old Old Testament studies and especially New Testament studies. Um, there are monographs now on, um, irony in the gospel of John by a guy named Duke, mm-hmm. um, irony in Matthew, irony in Luke. Um, uh, I have a doctoral student working on a dissertation on the ironic use of the old Testament in the book of revelation. So it's, uh, even on, on the scholarly level, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's beginning to, uh, take on, but, um, but if we had to define irony, it would be the, the saying or the doing of something that implies its opposite. Um, so if uh, you had seen me play tennis, for example, and then um, uh, we were in a group of people who saw me play tennis and you said, uh, 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 Beale, you're really a good tennis player. Well, everybody would laugh <laughs> because I'm a terrible tennis player. So when you said, Beale, you're a very good tennis player, you were mocking me. Now, probably, you know, Andreas, if you said that, I know you're a friend. It's a playful mock, and uh, (laughs) I would not be offended. Sometimes it's a mock to ridicule, Mm -hmm. um, even in Scripture. And um, but nevertheless, it's uh, uh, it is a saying or doing something that implies its opposite. So what we. Have generally in Scripture are what can be called two broad biblical uh, theological ironies. One would be uh, 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 well, how can I can't put it retributive irony, uh, mm-hmm. an irony of judgment, whereby um, the evil are attempting to uh, over, overcome the godly. And the very means by which they overcome them, uh, they are punished.
2: Great example um, of that, I guess, would be Haman in the Book of Esther, wouldn't it?
1: I was just going to bring up <laughs> Haman. <laughs> yeah, Haman is a classic example, right. and um, that's an amazing example.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and, and there, you even you, you get the tone of mocking, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, rightly so, of of Haman, and. Um, as Psalm two says, God sits in the heavens and He laughs. In that sense, mm. um, so um, uh, so yeah, that would be a, a very perfect example. What I try to do with these um, <clears throat> discussions is, at one point or another, try to relate them uh, to Christ and 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 the cross and the New Testament. So, very broadly speaking, mm-hmm. um, one could consider Haman a, a very subtle a foreshadowing of the devil erecting the gallows at the cross Mm. for Jesus and being hung on his own gallows. Mm. Uh, Mm. Then then you have what one might call redemptive um, irony, whereby the godly look cursed, but if they persevere, they're in the process of being blessed. And so again, in the Old Testament, uh, um, Joseph would be a beautiful example,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: where his being put into the pit is actually, from God's perspective, the very beginning of a process and of a march to um, uh, being set essentially on the throne of Egypt. And it looks like it's reversed again when he gets thrown in jail as a result of the uh, Potiphar's wife episode, mm-hmm. and um, but indeed. Uh, all of that is something that, that actually is in the process of being turned into a blessing. And, uh, and at the end of the narrative, of course, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for
3: good mm-hmm.
1: for all of that from the very beginning. So, uh, what looked to be cursing by his persevering, uh, which I think Psalm 105 actually says he persevered, um, uh, uh really really uh invisibly you, you could not see the blessing but uh in, in reality there, there there was a uh a beginning blessing which then became visible later and then of course at the cross Jesus looks you know like he's cursed but he's really blessed he looks weak but he's really strong he looks defeated but he's really winning a victory even before the resurrection so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I try to relate these different two different ironies to the new Testament. Uh, it's true of the believer as well. Uh, as Paul uh, in a well-known way says, you know, when I'm weak, then I am mm-hmm. strong. God loves to demonstrate his strength in the midst of human weakness.
2: Yes. Uh, at my church, the pastor is just, uh Finished in preaching through Second Corinthians, and I guess there, you have a bit of a wedding between irony and you have maybe satire, sarcasm. So sometimes yeah. it's maybe a bit of a combination of of, of, of multiple uh, devices there. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, you already touched on 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 one chapter, one of the longest chapters that I wanted to, to explore, which is the irony of salvation and in the cross. And I remember at my conversion, I, uh, you know, without the benefit of a regenerate mind, I just I wrestled. I was a twenty three year old uh, European, you know, university student, and I I just really struggled to understand how God could allow Jesus to be. Crucified, um, and uh, the the man, the missionary I met with, suggested very gently that that perhaps I should first uh, put my trust in Christ, and then maybe His Spirit could help me understand that that paradox or or irony better. And I'm I'm very glad I did because uh, in many ways, you know, God's ways are are not our ways; they're they're much higher. So there's this this um. I guess irony maybe is one way of putting it, paradox would be another, or uh, I guess Don Carson calls it compatibilism, that two truths could be both affirmed in Scripture, and uh, for our finite human minds, uh, sometimes hard to see how they could both be true, but they are. yeah. Yeah. Um the other chapter that uh you know not unexpectedly that that uh, the, the the final chapter that I wanted to explore with you a bit uh, uh that is quite um, substantial is uh, one that's called The Irony of Eschatology. Uh yeah. It's possible for you to for our listeners to summarize some of the most salient points of of that chapter?
1: Well, it's still along the lines of what we were speaking. Jesus uh, comes as the end time King. Uh, He begins to come that way in uh, the gospels. Uh, He's not just coming that way at his final, uh, what's some call a second coming, his final coming, but uh, he came as end time King and began to establish the kingdom in his ministry. Now I, when I was in seminary, I, I I didn't believe that. I I, I thought he would only establish his kingdom at his final coming in a millennium. Mm -hmm. But indeed, as I began to read the Gospels, it looked clear to me that uh, Jesus and the Gospel writers were applying um, kingdom prophecies to Jesus that were beginning to be realized, fulfilled Mm -hmm. in Jesus' ministry. For example, Daniel 7, 13, where Jesus repeatedly says, the son of man has come and for example, he has nowhere to lay his head. The son of man has come and he eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, and uh, the son of man has come and he must suffer and uh, be, be put to death. So that, that's very unusual because in Daniel 7, 13, where that language comes from, where it says the son of man, was coming on the clouds of heaven and came up to the ancient of days, receive authority over a kingdom. Uh, it seems like, uh, that Jesus and the gospel writers have misunderstood that because they say the son of man has come, but he's, he doesn't have a royal royal retinue. Uh, he doesn't have a palace to lay his head in. Mm He, um, um, uh, is not reigning, uh, apparently as Kings would reign on earth. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I think what is happening is that he is spiritually beginning invisibly, that is beginning to establish his kingdom. uh, And one has to have, has to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it as he, he actually literally says Mm -hmm. at points in the the gospels. Um, So for example, he begins to cast out demons. Well, that, that's a beginning example of him beginning to rule in the midst of uh, the evil and satanic influences of the world. So he's beginning to establish his end-time kingdom in that first coming. Right. And what appears to be, he takes that language of the Son of Man prophecy from Daniel 7.13 and seems to reverse it. But in reality, Um, He is interpreting it in the light of its Daniel 7 context because as that Daniel 7 description goes on, it indicates that uh, there will be a kingdom and people will reign. Um, And and it it speaks of the saints who will reign in an end time kingdom. And uh, after they uh, after they suffer tribulation. And uh, it's apparent uh, from reading the context of Daniel 7 that the saints are represented by the Son of Man. And so because they're identified and represented by him, he will have a kingdom, so they will have a kingdom. But likewise, they have to undergo suffering, so he must also be identified with suffering. What's true of the Son of Man is true of the saints and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Jesus really is taking Daniel 7.13 turning it on on its head and reversing it in the light of the prophesied suffering that will take place of God's end-time people since he is the head of those mm-hmm. end-time people. So he's basically setting up his throne uh, uh, in, in the midst of uh, of suffering. You can't see it, but um, he, he really is doing it. And then, of course, that's climax at the cross where it especially looks like he's not setting up a kingdom But indeed, he is. So um, that's at the heart of Mm -hmm. uh, the inauguration of um, the end time kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament, uh, for example, from from Daniel 7. So, you know, a lot of people, I grew up in circles, and many have grown up in such circles where the end times are something that are not here yet. They're to come in the future. So there's even an irony there. (laughs) What I'm contending (laughs) is the end times started. Two thousand years ago. Right. And uh, in a certain sense of their past, indeed, yet they're present and they are yet to come. We, we refer to that as the already and not yet. Mm-hmm. But for some people, it sounds ironic to say that the end times have already begun because yep. most consider end times as something only future. hmm
2: fascinating thanks so much for for sharing that it's interesting how closely the the chapter on the iron salvation and the iron eschatology really are are interconnected uh, just uh, one final question uh, in your conclusion you uh, talk briefly about the number 666 in the book of Revelation I guess it's revelation 1318 Uh can you briefly share your insights there with our listeners, especially in conjunction with the thesis of your book?
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there, um, I contend that people have two characters, ultimately. Uh, people uh, in the book of Revelation, especially is portrayed in chapter 13, and then in chapter 14, people are stamped. Uh, either with the name
3: mm-hmm.
1: of the beast who represents uh, the devil or they're stamped with the name of God. And um, the name in the Old Testament represents the character of someone and, um, and sometimes one's power over another. And so to be stamped with the name of the beast is to mean that you've taken on that character. To be stamped with the name of uh, Christ and God, as in uh, the beginning of chapter 14, um, is to be stamped with their character. Um, And so uh, I I, I was contending that there are... um, two characters, these marks, of course, are invisible, and they are figurative. Um, and that they are figurative, by the way, and not literal. Many take the mark of the beast as something literal, um, whether that's on, you know, uh, a credit card or whatever. Um, uh, the that the not literal is apparent from chapter 14, verse 1, where it says that the saints standing on Mount Zion have uh, the name of um, Christ, the name of God and and Christ uh, on their foreheads, well, that's certainly not literal. And that comes immediately after uh, the 666 Uh and the name of the beast. Uh So uh, basically there are um, two kinds of people, those identified with the beast lying under the devil's power And, uh, those who are identified with Christ and, um, the, you know, when it says it's the number of a man, you could translate that. And I do translate it as the number of humanity as much. And here's where the irony comes in as much as people. And as the devil himself, as much as people may strive to find satisfaction In themselves, they'll only get to six. They'll never reach the completion and satisfaction of seven, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately Jesus Christ did reach that, and we can reach it in him and find our full satisfaction. But people think that on their own, uh, sometimes and often, who are unbelievers, that they can find ultimate satisfaction in this life. But all they'll be doing is repeating. They'll only re- repeat that number 666 ad infinitum. It'll go on forever, mm-hmm. unless they trust in Christ, and then they'll get to that 7.
0: Well, that's that's uh, very, very helpful. Um, just as we try to wrap up here, you mentioned about um, this stage of uh, biblical theology in we're in as we're writing for the church and um, how do you think the message of your book can encourage uh, Christians today? Well, I
1: think that um, uh, an irony is is being played out in every person's life. And um, and I think that um, uh, all of us uh, experience uh, suffering, we experience, defeat, and um, uh, in fact, I I don't believe that our faith can grow unless God brings into our lives defeats and suffering, Mm -hmm. and and, and brings us to the end of ourselves in various ways. Um, It may be death, or it may be a student who's not cheating on an exam, when all around him he can see all of the other students are cheating they're going to make A's and if he doesn't cheat he's going to make an F he trusts in the Lord he makes an F and um, if he perseveres ultimately he'll be vindicated um, in one way or another and um, uh, so that, that that F is really a spiritual a if if you will. Mm-hmm. so God bring and, but that's hard he's God's bringing that student to a destructive grade. Mm-hmm. but um it may be that uh, and it is actually if that student trusts in the lord and doesn't cheat that um that student will is in the midst even then of being blessed it may be someone has uh been involved in in a relationship with a woman or a fellow it looks like it's heading to marriage and then one person breaks up uh often uh, that is seen as it's a horrible experience. I know people even now that that has happened to. It's a horrible experience, very hard to get over, but one's got to believe at those points in what romans eight twenty eight says, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And it's those times if we trust in him. That he will draw closer to us. And we are already, that that is already, already—that we will be in the midst of experiencing blessing when that happens. So those are just some examples. I don't think faith can really grow unless God brings us to the end of ourselves. As I said, that might be death. One of the things the Puritans prayed was, Lord, cause me to be a good witness in my death. Uh, it may be. There are many ends before death, and I've tried to give a few examples of those kinds of ends, Mm -hmm. E-N-D-S, that if we can persevere through them, God will bring us out stronger on the other side. You know, there's an economic principle. It's an ironic principle. It's called creative destruction. And the principle is this, that economies have to go through sometimes a severe downturn in order to be rebuilt and to come out stronger and healthier. That's a principle also of the spiritual life. Hmm.
0: Well, we definitely appreciate your work and uh, your contribution to this very helpful series. And uh, we're grateful for your time and uh, we look forward, uh, especially for our listeners to pick up the book and to uh, benefit from it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Yeah.
1: Before, before we end, um, there is one substantial book on biblical theology that has just come out.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it's by me and Benjamin Glad, and it's called The Story Retold,
2: mm-hmm.
1: published by InterVarsity Press. I just got my books today delivered to me on the porch.
2: That's great. And Congratulations, uh, Greg. That's wonderful. I had the privilege of reading that book uh, pre publication, and it's excellent.
1: Well, we're we're, we're hoping it can be used by students, upper-level college students and um, uh, early seminary students, as well as just those who are seriously interested in the Bible. We try to show what is the major influence in each uh, Old Testament influence in each New Testament book. So. Before we uh, left uh, today, I had to give a plug. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> now let's
2: we'll have, have you back on to talk about that book at some point in the
1: future, Greg.
0: That's exactly yeah, love right.
1: To. Love to.
0: Yeah, it's on our radar, even at the Center for Biblical Studies here, and uh, we do book notices, and so that's uh, mm. on our short list.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, that's in, that, that, that's encouraging. We're we're excited about it, and uh, obviously, so. Um, mm. Uh, I hope others will be.
2: (laughs) Great, Greg. Well, thanks so much for your friendship and for your prodigious scholarship. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us.
0: Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.